We are back in Haggai, and this next section is the next oracle, thus says the Lord, through Haggai the prophet, and it's in, verse, it's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Now, in this section, this is really going to put prophetic literature uh, it's, it's really going to make prophetic literature shine because in this section I just want to give us a heads up if you have a Bible that has cross references in it there's probably going to be cross references all over the place from this section um, just to help us put our Bibles together um, the Old Testament has a ton of books that talk about the history of Israel, the story of God's people. So you think of the book of Genesis and you think of the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then you get into Exodus and it's God's people in slavery and they get out of slavery. And then you think of First Samuel and Second Samuel. That's um, the, the beginning of the kingship where King David rises. Okay, you get my point that there's all of these historical books. And within the historical books, you have some prophets. So you actually have Moses is a prophet, right? He's actually a mouthpiece for God. Uh, and he obviously shows up in Exodus. Um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all those. Um, and then when you get into books like um, well, First Samuel, you have Samuel as a prophet, and then you get into First Kings, and you've got Elijah. Like these are Elisha; these are um, famous prophets that we think about, right? But then you have these uh, several books at the end of the Old Testament that are also prophets. Um, they're not in the historical books, the story of Israel. They have the, they get their own books, right? They get that are named after them, um, but they're not like after the story of Israel. They're at, like if you had the historical books and the prophetic books, you need to like go like this and read them like this. That Haggai um, ministered during a time that we have historical books about. Which, well actually do we have, well we have Ezra that talks about, um, that actually he mentions Haggai and Zechariah, that they're prophets during that time, right? Um, so you should all go home and read Ezra. It's a fun book to read. But the other thing I want to mention just about that too is not only are they, do they reference times in history, they love, prophets love to reach back in history. So Haggai is ministering at a time after the exile, but we're going to see in this section, he loves to reach way back in the beginning of time, way back to the Exodus. This is one thing prophets love to do, is to like span all of history, to remind God's people of what God has said so that they know what they should do. Okay, So just like get ready to know our Bibles in this session. Maybe that'll keep us awake and keep us moving. I mean, honestly, what's so exciting about this, the way the, the prophets do this, is you just see how amazing our God is. That he would work in all these ways in his word and how he is consistently the same God, book after book after book after book, prophet after prophet, story after story. It's awesome. It's so cool to see that come alive. So, here we go. Okay, if chapter 1, the first oracle, was about priorities and God's priorities, this next oracle is about God's promise. 
God's promises. And it's specifically about God's promises when we are discouraged. God's promises when we are discouraged. We, uh, we see this beautiful picture in chapter 1 of the people obeying and fearing God. And the way they're, the obeying and fearing God is directly related to going up to the hills and bringing wood and building the house. It's like the same thing. Like his word to them was to go build the house and they obeyed it and feared him in it, right? Oh, it's such a beautiful thing. But sometimes when we then get started on something, after a little while, it can get a little discouraging. We, uh, I mean, maybe even some of us here can, we, we are building the house. Like we are working on the house. And we just don't see good improvements. I mean, we just, we, things happen that discourage us, that didn't go the way we expected, that just there's a wrench in the plans and discouragement settles in. And that's what happens to the people of Israel. Discouragement settles in as they start the work on the temple. And God wants to say to them, how do you go on? Like when you get discouraged building the temple, when we get discouraged building the church, how do we go on? And he says, my promise will motivate you. My promises will motivate you. So I'm going to read the text for us again. And do you all like outlines? Do you want me to give you an outline? Do you? I'm not sure if you all do or not because... I guess we do have them on the PowerPoint at church, yeah. Okay, so verses 1 to 3 is the discouragement that settles in, verses 1 to 3. And then verses 4 to 9 are God's promises that need to be remembered. So when discouragement settles in, verses 1 to 3, remember God's promises, verses 4 to 9. And within verses 4 to 9, we have two promises. So here's like a sub-outline, sub-points to our outline. There's two promises in verses 4 to 9. Number one is the promise of his presence. Verses 4 to 5, the promise of his presence. And then verses 6 to 9, the promise of his blessing. Verses 6 to 9, the promise of his blessing. The promise of his presence and his blessing will motivate us in the midst of discouragement. Okay, let me read the text for us. Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. 
The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let me just pray for us as we dive into this portion. God, we do pray that you would humble us to receive your word. We pray that you would be glorified as we read about you in your word. May you do both these things in these moments before us. We trust you will in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so verse 3. That's where I'm going to start because verse 1 tells us the day, which is about, let's see, it's about a month and a half after the beginning of the book, the, the day where we are right now. So you have the, the book opening, and then three weeks later, you have the people working on the house, which is in verse 15. And then about a month after the people start working on the house, that's when this oracle comes, okay? So it's been a month since they started working on the house. And Haggai speaks to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people. And here's what he says. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Is, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Another Bible translation puts it this way. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. Who remembers the glory of the first temple? That's what he's asking. Who remembers the majesty of the first temple? So we're thinking about putting our Bibles together in prophetic literature. We're reaching back in history to think about Israel's story. The original temple took seven and a half years to build. I don't know how quickly your houses were built, but mine didn't take seven and a half years to build. But God's house, his, his permanent temple, took seven and a half years to build. This is what the book of 1 Kings says about that temple. King Solomon is the one who put the finishing touches on it. He overlaid the inside of the house with, get this, pure gold. Not paneling. Would you go with the pure gold? <laughs> he overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And around all the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. And Solomon even hired a special bronze worker to do all the bronze work. It says, Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, and he stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And this was a beautiful house. People loved this house, this house of the Lord. But do you remember what that looked like compared to what it is now? It must, this new one must seem like nothing. I know you've only been working on it for three weeks, but it must seem like nothing. It's, some of the people working on this would have seen the old temple. 
They would have been quite old. Not old. Not old. But older. They would have seen the old temple and they would have told stories to their grandkids about the beauty of the temple. And the grandkids would have looked at them with wide eyes and thinking, I can't wait to see that again, if we ever get to rebuild it again. And then now at this moment, grandma's eyes go dim and she says, it's just not the same. It's not the same. I mean, some of us, we know what that's like. We know the good old days, how things used to be. It just isn't the same today. This new temple was supposed to be the representation of God's presence among his people, right? We know that. That's what we learned in Haggai 1. If it pales in comparison, beauty-wise, what does that mean? Does that mean God isn't really there? I mean, don't we need it to be beautiful for God to be there? There is here now sorrow in the place of joy. You would think starting this work on the temple, they would be excited. But there is sorrow now instead of joy. There is dissatisfaction. There's grumbling and there's complaining. Even in the book of Ezra, it says, because that's the historical book that goes with this prophetic book, It says, the old men who had seen the first house, get this, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Is this new temple nothing in your eyes? I mean, Haggai's empathizing with them here. He he has not seen the former temple, but he's heard about it. He's heard how beautiful it is. He's, he's heard about the glorious gold and the glorious bronze and the, the stone that's overlaid with wood, that's overlaid with gold. He, he remembers hearing about all of the vessels and the silver. And, and actually, I kind of like that the people are concerned about the beauty of the house because they were pretty concerned about the beauty of their own houses, right, in chapter 1. And so it's pretty cool now that as their priorities are shifted, they want the glory of the new house to match the true glory of their God. So they're they're desiring a really good thing. But the dissatisfaction that they experience, the discouragement now is sucking the energy out of their work. I mean, you all, have have you experienced that yourself? You know, when you... um, the snare of compare, when, when, when we compare with other people, with, whether it's um, comparing how, how other churches are thriving, whether you're comparing about how um, some other ministry is, is going really well, whether you, you see how um, there's like somebody else has a ministry of evangelism and they just bring neighbors every Sunday to church and there's like a new stranger with them and you're like, I don't know how to do that. Uh, like, discouragement settles in. I mean, even thinking about just comparing ourselves, even with one another, like with our families or with our social capacity or with our, even with like how we look, we're, when we compare, it creates discouragement, right? And that's where they are. It creates discouragement. But God's grace abounds to them in this passage because he gives them a promise. 
He sees that they're discouraged and he doesn't want them to be, so he tells them, he reminds them of his promise. And it starts in verse 4. It says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, and again be strong, O Joshua, and further, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, and here's the promise that we've already heard, for I am with you. How can they work in the midst of discouragement and dissatisfaction? How can they keep on keeping on? Well, they can work because God is with them. And that's his first promise, that he is with them. It doesn't matter what this temple looks like. It matters what this temple represents. And it represents the same thing that the first one represented, that God is there with them. And it's his, his presence that is exactly what they need to strengthen them for their work because the, the presence of God is wrapped up in the covenant of God. And that's what he says in the next verse, in verse 5. He says in verse 5, well, it says, I am with you, verse 5, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay, so the word covenant, we're putting our Bibles together. The word covenant is just another word for promise. God's promise. They're, they're promise to one another, really. The promise that God made with his people when they came out of Egypt, that's what it says in verse 5, was the promise to be with them. Now this story is found in the book of Exodus. So after you read Ezra, go read Exodus. Uh, the story is found in the book of Exodus, and the book of Exodus is sort of split into two parts. The first part is all about them coming out of slavery, and we have all those really great stories with Pharaoh and the plagues and then the crossing of the Red Sea. But then the second half of the book is all about this covenant promise. It's all about God saying, I want to be with you. And he does that through um, giving instructions about the building of the tabernacle, which is the temporary temple, Right? Even in, I'll read this verse from Exodus 19 when he's, he's in the midst of making the covenant. He says, the Lord says to his people, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then they go and they build this tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus, the very last chapter, it talks about the glory of the Lord coming down and filling the temple. And that that represents God's presence with his people and his glory. So what is God saying then here when he says, Work for I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came up out of Egypt, God is saying, I keep my promises. I keep my promises. I know you're discouraged, but I keep my promises. You think that the lackluster, that, that, that the um, lack of beauty in this temple represents me not there? It doesn't matter. I keep my promises. I'm never going to leave you. I am with you. When God made that covenant back in Exodus, God was and is still today faithful to carry out that promise. So when you work on the new temple, we must remember that he is with us and that at the end of verse 6 it says that his spirit remains in our midst. 
And that's, how, that's the truth for us today, isn't it? That we have the Spirit within us. That is God with us. And the Spirit, the, the New Testament talks about the Spirit being the ultimate comforter and helper. In fact, Jesus Christ even says in the book of John, and I can't remember if we've already had a sermon on this in our sermon series, but in the book of John, Jesus says, you want me to go away because if I go away, something's going to come to you that's better. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus can't remain forever in bodily form, but the Spirit can remain forever. Remain forever. That's what it said in Haggai, and that's what it means today. His Spirit remains forever. His Spirit helps us in times of grief. It helps it, the Spirit helps us pray. Just thinking about discouragement, like in times of trial, the Spirit can sanctify us. I'm taking this from verses in the New Testament about what the Spirit does for us. The Spirit gives us words to say to a grieving friend. The Spirit remains always, especially in the times of, of discouragement. Actually, I shouldn't even say especially, because he's just constant. He's always there. And in the time of blessing, it's really encouraging to know that he's there. But in times of discouragement, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I got God in me. And he's not somewhere else. Like, he is here always. And he wants us to remember that. If we're discouraged, if we're discouraged but we are in Christ, we have the ultimate encourager. We have the ultimate comforter. And we have the ultimate then motivation to keep going. The ultimate motivation to, as he says earlier in verse, where is it, in verse 4, to be strong. We have the ultimate encourager to fear not. At the end of verse 5 there. When we do work to build the temple, we're not doing it. Let's just set ourselves straight here. We're not doing it because we're pulling up our bootstraps and we're doing the right thing. No, we're only able to do it because the Spirit remains in us. That's the only way we're able to do it. Because we have the Spirit. That's God's first promise. His presence by His Spirit working in us to build the temple. He's the one that stirs us up to work. It's by His Spirit. But there's a second promise. There's a second promise that will motivate us in discouragement. And that's the promise of the blessing to come. The promise of the blessing to come. And notice how I word that. It's future-oriented. Because in present discouragement, there's no promise that, like, that discouragement's going to go away. There's no, there's no promise things are going to, like, turn around right away. It's a, it, there's a future blessing that we're looking forward to. And it starts there in verse 6. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. That is a really confusing couple of verses right there. What on earth is he talking about? I mean, this is, this is the prophet reaching back into history, trying to bring their minds back to something so he can show what's going to happen in the future. He says, yet once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. So that means he shook the heavens and the earth once before, right? I mean, it was 
Think about it, right? He shook it once before. They would have thought, when did that happen? And it was at the covenant. When I was just reading to us about Exodus 19, the making of the covenant. It says in Exodus 19 and 20, there was thunder and flashes of lightning and a sound of trumpet and the mountain was smoking and people were trembling. Like it was shaking. When he made his covenant, his promise to be with them, he shook the heavens and the earth yet once more. I will do it again in a little while. I love that little phrase, in a little while. Like, can it be in 10 minutes? Can it be like next week? It was not 10 minutes or next week. It was over 500 years until he shook the earth again. Do we know when he next shook the earth? Can you think about it? We're guessing. When Jesus was crucified. I'm not sure if that's what you all said. In Matthew 27, it says, at Jesus' death, literally, at Jesus' death, like literal, the earth shook and the rocks were split. The future shaking that Haggai spoke of is the shaking that Jesus Christ caused with his death and resurrection. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. It happened. It came true. His promise would come true. And is that promise a promise, a blessing, that Christ would die for the purpose of saving us, of bringing us in to the kingdom? I said that's a pretty good blessing. <laughs> it's a pretty good blessing. He ushered in, Jesus Christ ushered in a new kingdom with a literal shaking to a kingdom that is unshakable. Now, we know this is true, that this happened, that the shaking happened. But it's funny, if you, were, if you put yourselves in the shoes of Israel, they're in the middle of building this temple. And then Haggai said, God says to them, okay, by the way, I'm going to shake everything. So... Like, whatever you build is just going to be ruined one day. I mean, that, that literally is what he's saying. And we know, after Jesus died and the persecution of the church, in the year 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. Okay, there, it's not there anymore. So the, te the temple was gone. And by God's grace, that's fine for us, because we had Christ, who's God with us, and we have the Spirit, who is in us now. So it's fine that that did happen. But... That there's this tension then of the that Christ has ushered in the kingdom, this unshakable kingdom, but yet the the temple was still torn down. And I don't know about you, but in my day today, I feel shaky a lot. Like there's there's not literal shakiness, but there's stuff that happens in my life that is still really hard. Like, I mean, God, if you are, how does he put it there? That he's gonna shake the heavens and the earth and shake the nation so that all the treasures of the nation shall come in and fill this house with, house with glory. Like, has that happened? Has that, like, am I assured of that today? And this is um, where the theological idea of the already and not yet comes into play. I don't know if you've heard that before, but we have this sense of the kingdom has already been ushered in with Jesus Christ defeating death on the cross 
paying for our sin, being risen from the grave and ascended to heaven. And yet, in this world today, Satan still reigns. Satan is still, uh, I forget how Ephesians puts it, the God of this world, or, right? It's, Satan is still very present. Even though Christ is ruler, Satan is still, like, shaking things up here. So we live in this already, not yet. So we have to then look forward to actually another shaking. That there will be another shaking. So just like they were looking forward to another shaking, we're looking forward to another shaking, which will be a final shaking. It will be one that is universal and catastrophic, and I think probably really what he's talking about here. That it will be final. That all the, the nations, the treasures of the nations shall, be pour, shall pour in, and this house shall be filled with glory. So then that means in Haggai here, Haggai is, is reaching to this greater hope that we share in Christ. And he didn't even know who Christ was. He says in verse 7 that he is going to shake all the nations so that he can fill the house with glory. And he says in verse 9, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. So when Jesus returns and Satan is dealt with, when Satan is finally conquered... When that happens, the house that we will experience then is the house of the greater glory. Revelation 21 puts it this way. The city of God, where we will all go, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. That is what Haggai is reaching to. What is to come will be so much greater than what is now because what is to come then will be forever ruled by God where his glory and splendor are on display. I feel like we're in a better time perhaps than the people of Haggai's day, but we ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, they're discouraged because this temple looks bad. I mean, if we're discouraged because things look bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be with him forever, not tainted by sin. Their task then, moving forward, is to work on the house of the Lord amidst discouragement, remembering the two promises. Remembering the promise of his presence and remembering the promise of blessing. And we even get a final blessing at the very end of verse 9, that he will give peace. And we know in heaven that is ultimate peace. The way Haggai, or the way the Lord speaks through Haggai is pretty amazing, reaching all the way back to the book of Exodus and God's original promise to his people and then come all the way through to the day of Haggai, reaching ahead to what Christ will bring in that we've already realized And then us looking forward to the final, ultimate, glorious temple, 
We have already come to this kingdom if we've placed our faith in Christ. And the proof, proof of our faith then is the continuation of building the temple even if we're discouraged. Our sense of beauty is not God's sense of beauty. God is in the people business and he wants us to flourish in this temple building. But we have to be realistic and know Satan is also in the people business. And he doesn't want us to flourish. He wants us to be discouraged, to break us down. But Haggai says, no. Don't listen to Satan. Listen to God's word. Listen to his promise. Remember God's promise. And look forward to the cataclysmic shaking that will bring in the eternal kingdom that will never end. Let me pray. God, you are our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble and discouragement. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God, you are there and you will not be moved. God, the, the nations rage. Satan is on the move. But God, you are with us. You are our fortress. You are with us. And that is the promise we cling to in discouragement. We thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.